This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. On today's SCP, we chip away at an avalanche of questions from students at the University of Nebraska. If you want to know how med, student, med students think about their world, you've come to the right place for that sort of thing to pour directly into your ear holes. <laughs> and, with, and without my co-hosts, I couldn't even answer these questions. So put your hands together for Aditi Patel. Hello. Applause for Aline Sanduk. Hello. Sanduk. Sanduk. It's okay. Jesus I've answered Christ. to worse. God, I've answered to "Hey, moron!" I am proud. Excited for it. Literally, uh, admire the intellect of Kelsey Anderson. Hey, guys! And gasp in appreciation (laughs) at the bravery of Jacob Kristen Crestenson. That was good. I will. It's not easy. The second attempt was was when you're me. (laughs) I've known Aline Sanduk for literally three years now, at least. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Just only recently found out her name was pronounced Sanduk when she, Sanduk, when she <laughs> hosted her own show on the MSTP. We, just, uh, we got in too deep. It was it was just too far along for me to for me to correct you. At uh, that that point. happens a lot. <laughs> Look, correct me for God's sake. Yeah, someone else actually got mad at me about that. It was actually Pete Rubenstein was like oh, he found okay. out that he was mispronouncing my first name, and then he courted me in a hallway and was like. Oh, what the hell? <laughs> Why didn't you say anything at all this time? It's like it doesn't matter. I know. I I don't feel very precious about my name either. So I guess you know, at some point, whatever. But yeah, it's always embarrassing for the person who's been an idiot for a while. <laughs> Kelsey, Jacob, tell yes. us a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your journey to med school. Where you're from? What schools you go to? That sort of thing. Um, I am from Peoria, Illinois. Mm, um, beautiful Peoria. Yes. Oh, yes. Um. <laughs> I nothing did, wrong with Peoria. Nothing wrong with Peoria, except half the buildings are not used. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> that really? is changing. That okay. is changing. Yeah. Um, so uh, I did undergrad there at a small university called Bradley University. Um, I did that primarily to stay at home. Um, moved out after two years, but uh, I majored in uh, chemistry. We had a pre- chemistry pre-professional degree. And uh, just basically took away some of the upper level chem courses so you could take more bio electives ah. in, towards the end. Ooh, um, bio. Oh. No, I, I loved it. And it was... Um, <laughs> Wait, what did you study, Aditi? Biochem. Oh, oh. fair enough. Fair yeah. Enough. Wow, fair. really pooping on the bio in the biochem <laughs> degree you have there. Well, to be fair, we always had like this um, enemy relationship between the second and the first floor because we didn't have separate buildings. It was chemistry was second floor, bio was first floor, and it was like... The first mm. floor is like, ew. And then it would be the other way around for the bio major. So did that you, was always did you fun. Pinch your Strange. Nose as you were going by that floor on the elevator. Yeah, I would hold, I'd hold my breath like it was like a like a graveyard. Like you can't breathe as you pass the Strange world we live in when, our, when tribalism is so strong that but, but then like, bio and biochem cannot get along. Well, then like half of my friend group was bio majors. So mm. I 
got along a little bit, I guess. Yeah. You hate them except for the cool ones, which were your friends. Yes, obviously. yes, that's it, of yeah. course. Um, what about you, Kelsey? Where where'd you uh, hail from? So I'm from Clarion, Iowa, super small town in the middle of nowhere. How many people? 2,500. Mm-hmm. 60 people in my graduating class. So mm-hmm. That was fun. Yeah. And then I moved to big old Omaha and did my undergrad at Creighton. Omaha, so. Omaha. <laughs> Got some football ra, 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 what? <laughs> what was that? It was a football reference. Oh, see, that's sports. That's my sports ball. <laughs> I don't know I don't... if it's embarrassing, but I've never, I'd never heard of Omaha until I met Kelsey. Are you so serious? I am 100% serious. Really? Had you heard of Warren Buffett, like, though? Yes. Okay. Well, he's yes. like the staple of Omaha. Yeah. yeah he, he is Omaha. He is. Like, right? He's why Omaha is there. When I was a boy, there was the Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom was a television show that we used to watch. And that's how I know of Omaha. <laughs> is Mutual of Iowa an insurance company? Mutual of Omaha. <laughs> and it is an insurance company, I think. It is, because I've walked past it. Yeah. The, so they used to sponsor this wild, this animal television show that... I mean, my father and my brother, I'm sure, used to watch. Yeah. Anyway. That's great marketing. Look at that. Like yeah. 20 years later, you're like, yes, Mutual Mutual of Omaha. <laughs> Not a sponsor. Call us. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, before we continue, uh, I want to remind every one of our listeners of an important obligation that they have, uh, which is to vote on or before November 6th. You, by the, When this show comes out, I think you'll have 19 or 20 days left. To get that accomplished, uh, if you want to learn how, if you've never voted before, I understand. It seems, uh, might seem like a difficult process, but it is not for most people, unless you are a person of color or poor. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that, people of color or poor, but apparently our country... Anyway. <laughs> I just went, <laughs> went off into the weeds there. <laughs> you want to try it again? For, no, I'm just going <laughs> to keep on going. Learn how to vote at vote.gov. They will tell you where, how you can vote in your state, how it works, how to get registered to vote if you're not registered. I can't imagine a more important thing for you to do this year than that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, please vote. As I said earlier, we've got a ton of questions to get to today. Jennifer Anderson, a sociology PhD student at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, she teaches a, sor- a course called Sociology of Health and Healthcare. She reached out to me to propose that her students send in questions for us as an extra credit assignment, which was a great idea, and I jumped on it because it meant I'd barely have to prepare for this show. I mean, that I'd, <laughs> it would be a great educational opportunity for her students' young, fertile minds, which is important to me. And indeed, they delivered some lovely questions for us to consider. Shall we begin? Let's do it. Let's go. All right, our first question, uh, Ryan wants to know about how you got ready for med school interviews. Let's hear from Ryan. After having already gone through the process of interviewing for medical school, what advice would you give your younger self about preparing for your interview? Good question, Ryan. What do you guys think? You guys are fresh off the interviewing for med school thing. Yeah, it's actually kind of surreal because um, now I see like a bunch of people like interviewing now and it's like, it felt like yesterday that I was here Mm. doing my interview. Yeah. Um, And I was really, really wanting to go to Carver and it was my first one. And so it was like, well, now how do I prepare since I don't have ones to practice off of? So my my biggest piece of advice would probably be to do a mock interview with like your pre-med advisor or something. Um, and my pre-med advisor really treated it like an interview. Like she acted like she didn't know me mm-hmm. when I walked in the office. And so um, mock interviews, I think, are, are very good. Method acting. 
Yeah. And I mean, like a lot of interviews do, <laughs> a lot of interviews do similar questions. So I would basically just come up with responses to some of like the big questions. So it doesn't quite catch you off guard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I echo everything Jacob said. Um, but just realize that they want you just as much as you want them. They're trying to sell themselves to you. So kind of take it with a grain of salt and do what you can. Nice, yeah. There are different kinds of interviews we've, we've talked about on the show before. Um, uh, there are the mini multiple interview mm-hmm. MMI, that's mm-hmm. what they call them, mini multiple interviews, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. where you go around and maybe respond to different scenarios in uh, some different rooms, or they will mix in some questions about, you know, what do you think about this issue um, facing medicine today? Like, did you guys do any of those? Yeah, I did. It was so much fun. Yeah. I went oh, in really? like terrified about it, but there are like so so many different scenarios. There's an Olympic sports one. What sports team would you pick and why? Oh. It was really cool. fun. I loved it by the end. We we, we won't mention what school that is because usually you sign a some sort of agreement that says oh, you're good not call. To... <laughs> <laughs> okay, we would have censored you, I'm sure. Dave would have censored you. Um but yeah, that's that's one kind of interview. So you enjoyed that. I've yeah, it was just, there's no real way to prepare for it because um, it's so random and they weren't really medically related at all. Mm. Um, they, we had one question about like social determinants, which is ironic for this topic. Um, yeah, the sports one, just kind of how you interact in a team. And then the final one was just kind of like, what's on your application that you that's most important to you and what's kind of something that you want to explain on it? And that was the only application question we had. Mm. Interesting. Like we had one about graffiti too. If you saw somebody doing graffiti, what would would you approach them? Would you call the cops? So that was a really random one too. Question: I, Were they good at it? <laughs> That's what I said. Yeah. Uh, there you go. How nice. pretty was the graffiti when it was completed? That, that kind of reminds me of the like test. I forget what it's called, like Casper test or something like that, where you certain schools are now trying to assess whether you're um, have a good moral compass, and mm. you take this like ethical exam how long it is but they give you a scenario and then you have to like type responses and it's sort of nerve-wracking because you have to be the fastest typer in the world um or you don't get all of your thoughts across so they kind of sound like that interesting i recently on a residency interview which is kind of different but still an interview process got asked to take a personality test and then based off of my results we talked about how i would fit in to a certain program or my specialty of choice Hmm. Um, which is interesting because a lot of studies are now showing that behavioral types of questions are better suited to gauge whether your candidate is going to be a good fit for your program or not. So, hmm. so they're asking you, what, what did, can you tell us what they asked you exactly? So it was one of those 16 personalities, personality tests that you can take online. It's completely free. Oh, okay. I get it. And then based off of that, we kind of discussed results, and then they ask behavioral questions based off of your subset. I see. So it was really an odd way to do it. It's, you know, getting to know somebody through an interview, I can tell you, for job interviews is like the worst. There is no good way to, or at least none that I've been exposed to that is a good way to do it. But you know, it is what it is. It's probably it's the only it's the only thing we have available to us to to sort of get to know people. So they, yeah, they try all different things. I would say, um, find out what format your interview is going to be in. I think most medical schools will tell you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, something about that. Um, find out what is important 
to your medical school. I mean, I can tell you that um, things that are important in Iowa are things like um, service, uh, research. Um, what else would you say? Uh, leadership. Leadership. Shadowing. Um, mm -hmm. Those are things that are important to the school in terms of what we are going to want to teach you or want to want you to um, get involved in when you get here. So, you know, that might inform the way you approach answering interview questions or things like that. Yeah. And like, I just want to add that you, when you look at these things and you look at what schools look for, don't create a fake persona yeah. to get in because you're not only interviewing to get into the school, you're also trying to figure out if it's a good fit for you. So if there's something that the school holds like near and dear to their, you know, curriculum, don't and you hate don't that fake thing. It. Yeah, don't <laughs> fake it because then you get here and you're miserable. Right. Because mm -hmm. that's just not who you are. So you're going to have to pretend to be that person for four yeah. years, basically. Yeah. 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 And that's usually our advice for just about any kind of when you're considering med schools. It's a, it's a good piece of advice. Mm -hmm. Also, I feel like the internet is really your friend here. Like, it's not too hard to like just Google mock interview questions mm -hmm. and like just make a list of like potential topics that might come up. And like I, you know, to kind of echo what everyone said is like, just practice your story because mm. like you, you know your own truth, but if you can't articulate it properly in such like a short and high pressure amount of time yeah. or situation, then, you know, it'll be harder to like, you know, persuade that person of your authenticity. And so you're just practicing the muscle memory and how to move your mouth and like how to move your body as you're describing these things. So yeah. I think the other thing you might think about is you can, to some extent, shape the, the things that you talk about in your interview. Um, and it probably depends on the school or whatever, but I, I know that, you know, for instance, uh, before the show, Aditi, you were talking about how you've been asked about being on the podcast. Yeah. And that's because you put that podcast, you put your participation in the podcast in your application materials. That was something that you said. And that's, so I think that's kind of guaranteed to catch somebody's eye, like, especially if they don't know what a podcast is or they don't have any like frame of reference. And so they'll ask you that question. Oh, what, what, what's that about? Yeah. And it definitely helps you stand out a little bit more too. Hmm. And knowing what that program is about will also help because you can highlight specific parts of your application mm -hmm. and be like, Hey, this is something that I do that we have in common. Yeah. Um, and that'll really help. So today they're having a, um, an interview day. Um, and I know that uh, Kathy, the director of admissions, um, was impressed with a couple of people. For instance, the guy who talked about raising um, and showing carnivorous plants, the person who, you know, uh, raises uh, bunnies, the rabbits, <laughs> <laughs> little bunnies, bunnies, and, and like um, spins their fur, into, which is something that she is interested in, spins their fur into like yarn and does crochets with that. She crochets, apparently she crochets swimsuits, oh my God. which I, you know, like, uh, I don't know how that works. It's going to be a niche market for that. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I'm looking for a swimsuit, uh, but it has to be made of rabbit fur. And have lots. And it can't get wet. And lots of holes. <laughs> like, and has I have to have to lots of holes hand. in it, you know. <laughs> I don't know. It's something to talk about, you know, like I guarantee you yeah. that that's going to come up somehow. Um, so anyway, yeah, I mean, you can shape your interview to some extent, you know, if you want to talk about something by the same token, if you don't want to talk about something and you're not legally obligated to disclose it, then um, don't put it in your materials if you don't have to. 
Oh, yeah. Practice the art of just like navigating around a conversation and making sure that you maintain the control and the purpose of that conversation, because that's a very useful and sneaky interview tactic that a lot of people don't understand. Mm. It's like how politicians at a debate will (laughs) just ignore the question. Yeah, like like sidestep or decline to answer the question without like the moderator realizing that they didn't answer the question. Yeah, I mean, the key is the key is probably to do it well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not say I'm not going to answer that. I always admire you ever watch uh, uh, TV cop shows. And, you know, invariably somebody asks, oh, what are you, what are you guys uh, looking at over there? And the cops just ignore the question and ask whatever question <laughs> they want to ask. And I think about this all the time for some reason. Like, maybe I have a deep-seated fear of being asked a question I don't want to answer. So I'm always like, well, how will I answer this question? You know, like, I chose to, um, for instance, uh, come to work a little late today because I wanted to get something else done. But if I'm asked about it by a coworker who's jealous, how am I going to deflect that question? <laughs> how am I going to just not answer that question? Anyway, <laughs> let's go to <laughs> Jordan's question. Jordan wonders about the right intellectual approach to medical school in a particular way. Would you suggest going into medical school with a focus in mind or having a more open and unbiased approach? So focused on a particular career or open-minded? I have a feeling that Aditi might be interested in answering this question. Yeah, this is a great question. So I came into medical school, pretty much decided that I was going to do urology. Um, And why did you feel that way? I had a lot of exposure to it earlier on. I did research and shadowed and worked with clinicians, and I absolutely loved the field. I loved the people. I loved the anatomy. And I knew that was my purpose in life. Like, I just knew that that was what I was going to do. So many jokes that I could have made just I know, I know. (laughs) The anatomy. (laughs) (laughs) See, if you preempt the joke, it takes the wind out of his sail. Yeah. Damn it. (laughs) Um, And then I went through core clerkships. I still really loved surgery. I loved a little bit of everything. And I was kind of starting to question whether I wanted to do urology or not, even though I still knew, you know, surgery was probably the right path for me. Um, And so I had to reflect and kind of figure out, you know, what's important to me now, what's going to be important to me about 10 or 20 years later down the road, and what specialty will allow me to do that best. Mm -hmm. And I did, you know, an advanced urology rotation. I did my selectives. I did a couple of other things I was interested in at the time. Um, And ultimately, about two months ago before applications were due, I decided to go into interventional radiology, um, which is similar but very different. And so even though you come in with a focus in mind, it's always good to keep an open mind and let things happen uh, because you might ultimately find something that's a little bit better suited for you. Like I had no idea IR was a thing until I did a random two-weeker in radiology, which I had no interest in at the time. Um, And that really changed the way I looked at things. So you can come in with an open mind, and you can come in with a focused mind, but... Yeah, I mean, I know there was at least one person who um, I've met over the years who came in, she wanted to do CT surgery. That's all she's wanted to do since she was eight years old or whatever, which is like, which blows my mind because I would not have known what (laughs) CT surgery is at eight years old. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. that's what she wanted to do. 
Um, you guys come in with ideas about what you wanted to do, Kelsey and Jacob? I am an open book. Everything I shadow, I fall in love with. Mm. So I've worked in an ophthalmology clinic, have a bunch of OB, GYN shadowing hours. Um, but everything is just kind of on the table right now. I haven't really taken anything off. So mm -hmm. yeah. you're, you're like a med school's dream. Like you're totally <laughs> undifferentiated. You're just perfect for exposing yourself to different things. Yeah. I'm just along for the ride for now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I come in with an interest in pediatrics and cardiology and mm -hmm. maybe mix the both. But um, yeah, I would say that it's okay to have interests, but don't shut yourself out for other things because you never know when, you know, we never really had the experience of being in a more cl clinician, like a, a physician um, position in the clinic so mm -hmm. there was no way to get that out properly yeah, yeah I don't yeah I don't clinician physician <laughs> clinician <probably>. physician it's <laughs> whatever you're just effed from the beginning <laughs> <laughs> but you you gain a different perspective when you see it from the perspective of a doctor mm -hmm. um, instead of being like I was a nurse aide in oncology and um, it's it's going to be a different experience when I see it from you know, from the viewpoint of a, of a doctor. So mm -hmm. just keep an open mind, but interests definitely help guide you in like what groups you join. Um, yeah. But if you don't know if you'd like something, join that interest group too. Cause yeah, we have a, he's speaking of the student interest groups that, um, that we have here at Iowa and I'm sure are common in, in other schools as well. And the whole idea of those is to, you know, sort of give you some exposure to the, to, you know, the career a lot of them bring in clinicians from the hospital to talk about their specialty um i know our family medicine um interest group is pretty popular um and they do like things like i want to say they do things like suture clinics and yep. mm -hmm. and things like that which is kind of fun to to uh to go through um so yeah that's a great way to sort of figure it out once you get here um also these, if you forget lunch they usually bring free lunch. Yeah, that's <laughs> we're into food here at Iowa. So. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to Lucas, who has this question. What is a typical day in the life of a medical student like? Very good question, Lucas from England. <laughs> I don't is that on purpose? Yeah, I just oh. chose <laughs> just having a little fun there. <laughs> I don't know if Lucas is Lucas. If you're from England, let us know. But. Anyway, what is day in the life? Go ahead. We'll start with the M1s in the room. Okay. Um, so we typically start class at eight, sometimes nine, um, and usually have like lectures. Um, so we have like a biochem course called Foundations of Cellular Life, um, but that's since ended and now we've started Mechanisms of Health and Disease. So those usually fill up like the first two hours. Um, and then you'll have um, case-based learning, or sometimes a break, or sometimes there'll be um, mass, which is medicine and society uh, classes um, before the lunch hour. And you get an hour break. And that's usually when the interest groups meet and uh, other events kind of go on. And then in the afternoon, typically have anatomy. Um, and then anatomy lab is also on two days of the week. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my typical day, uh, classes optional here at Iowa, or certain classes are, so I like my sleep, so I sleep in till about 7 or 8. We'll all get around campus around 8.39, 9 
Panopto for a little bit, go to the required classes. Panopto is our uh, lecture capture system where you can go and it's basically like podcasting for lectures. Exactly. And you can two time the speed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is always great. Twice as efficient. (laughs) Yeah. Watching lectures. So then we have a bunch of small groups and I am a study on campus. So once class is done for the day, I kind of like hunker down here and we have learning communities here. So just a group of students will just all study and go home around 10 o'clock and repeat 10 jeez i'm out of here about like six five i cannot stay here for i can't long. study at home and that's just two different ways of studying <laughs> so so uh aditi you're in your fourth year mm-hmm. so tell us about your day in the life so normally i'd be on a rotation of some sort and so start time and end time varies based off of the clinician's schedule Right now I'm on a research block, so I control my schedule. And in the meantime, I'm also interviewing. So my days are very variable. Every day is a little different just because I'm either working on my clinical studies or my research, or I'm traveling to go somewhere to interview. So what was it like, say, when you were on a surgery rotation of some sort? So surgery, for general surgery, I would start around 4 4.30, um, which would mean I'd be up at like 3 or 3.30 to get to the hospital. I'd start pre-rounding on patients before the surgery residents or the attending were ready to see their patients for the morning. And that just means you're collecting data about the patients that have been assigned to you. Yeah, and visiting them Mm -hmm. and talking with them. And then OR cases typically start around 7, 7.30 here. And you'd be in the ORs getting the patient ready and seeing the patient before the surgeon does, especially if you're interested in surgery. That's probably the way to go about it. Usually operate until 3, 3.30. Some days you can go up until 7, 7.30, even later at 9. I've been in the OR till 10 some days. Um, and once you're done operating, if you are there around 5, your team likes to evening round, so see your patients again. And then you're usually good to go for the day unless you're on call and need to stay a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And Aline? Yeah, so... Aline is an MD-PhD student. Yeah, so... And in that situation, you do your first uh, two years mm-hmm. um, along with the rest of your entering class. So you do the same things that, say, Jacob and, and Kelsey did um, and will do for a couple of years. And then... She does a couple of, you do, you'll do a couple of rotations. You've already done that. And now you're in your PhD phase. And so what is a day in the life like for you? <laughs> so it was pretty rough for me. Um, I felt like I was studying constantly, but still just barely getting by. Mm. Uh, so my day typically looked like, um, obviously, I, I would go to class um, or would try to go to class because it was it's so easy to fall behind. Um, as you guys know, um, as you all know. Uh, so I would go to class. Um, I typically studied over lunch. Um, I would give myself a break after the last class of the day, like whenever that ended, four or five o'clock, um, and try to eat at the same time. And then usually I would study from the end of my meal until like 10 or 11 o'clock here. And then um, I would walk home, which was like such a welcome break, like a guilt-free break from studying um, to walk home. And then usually I studied a little bit at home, but I tried to go to bed by midnight. Mm -hmm. Um, And then usually I would wake up at four o'clock and then study 
uh, to prepare for class at eight. And yeah, so I would <laughs> wake up in my PJs, go to study, and then usually take a break around um, 6.30 or 7 to like get dressed and eat and then try to leave by 7.30 to get to class. Yeah, it was rough. And, and it, I wasn't even that good. Like I, don't, I really don't even know how I survived actually. Um, but Well, you did. And now that you're a PhD student, what's, what's a day in the life? It's a whole other life. So I, I really feel like grad school is the right place for me. Like my PI has literally changed my life. Um, so I've, I've told this story many times, but because I don't know um, Kelsey and Jacob, I, you know, how you get your first summer off um, after the first year of med school. Um, I did the summer research fellowship in John Houtman's lab and um, I really enjoyed that. I liked being in the lab and I liked working for him and I liked working with the people in that lab. And so when the end of the summer came, we started talking about, you know, ways that I could come back for a longer time. And I knew people did some like one year fellowships. And that's when he told me that you could apply to the MSTP internally. And I did. And they took me in, which was awesome. The medical scientist training program. If you haven't listened to the episode that we just released a couple of days ago yeah. on the MD, PhD and the MSTP type programs, you can go and listen to that. Yeah. 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 It's a good episode. It was a lot of fun to record. Yeah, yeah. Um, so grad school is a little bit different. It's it's also hard, and there are a lot of long hours, but you have a little more control over your life um, and your schedule and how you get the things done that you need to get done. Um, and there's the added pressure that you're doing something that's like by definition kind of novel. Um, but you know, people here are very helpful because um, everyone under there's a culture of understanding that you're kind of working at the edge of like the limits of human knowledge. And so people help each other out, give each other advice. Um, but it is really taxing to do a lot of things that don't really pan out um, and kind of fail, quote unquote. Um, but as John says, like experiments don't fail. You just didn't ask the question the right way. Or like maybe your uh, typically your hypothesis is wrong and then you have to adjust. Um, but for me, it's like solving puzzles all day long. And I really enjoy that. Um, yeah, hundred percent. The back to the workload question. Um, I mean, we've established that yes, it's harder. Um, it's really the the volume and the pace. You're uh, studying so much more information, and you have so much uh, fewer number of minutes yeah. to learn it in. Really. Yeah. Um. My I have a friend who's at Midwestern, and um, he talked about he he sent me a Snapchat as he went to start an immunology lecture. And he said that they just covered our entire semester of immunology in like two days. <laughs> so yep. it's it's um it's the volume and the pace. I would I would echo that. I mean it's I would say college is like a garden hose and that sometimes it gets ramped up and then medical school is like a fire hose and the trick is not to learn how to drink from the fire hose, it's to learn methods of handling the amount of water. So Yep. Yep, yeah. Um, I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly. I'm apologizing ahead of time if I uh, don't. Teadrana. Te Teadrana? Could be Teadrana? Could be Tedrana? Hmm. <laughs> Aline's like, hmm. I'm sure one of those one is One of right. those is probably yeah. right. <laughs> let's, uh, let's hear from her. She has this question. Is there any time where you want to quit? What do you do when you get into one of those moods? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot, actually. Yeah. I'm sure. Depends on the person, I'm sure, but it's not uncommon. Yeah. It's... I mean, there'll be at least one point where you think you're an imposter and you you question whether you should be here. Yeah. yeah. Imposter oh. syndrome is a is a thing. It's real. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it doesn't go away. No. Mm-mm. Is what is what I've noticed. Yeah, I, I mean, I've heard from like long term faculty who are like, I still have it. Like, I, like I've made it. I've got an R01 and I still feel like an imposter. So yeah. Yeah. it's a lifelong dilemma. I mean, it comes like. back to like the mind game. It's like you have to really keep your mental health in check. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's very easy to discourage yourself, even though you shouldn't be. Totally. Yeah. And I, I think getting back to the faculty who are like, you know, I'm still not sure that I know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> I think that's normal because medicine, unlike maybe, you know, other things that you could learn to do is a, it's a career that you have committed to spending your entire life learning new things. Mm -hmm. There is no time at which you are done. That's why they call it practicing medicine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, So that feeling of being, you know, sort of behind the eight ball never quite goes away. Um, and you just become comfortable with that mm-hmm. or you mm-hmm. don't and then you do quit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the hardest thing is like a lot of a lot of med students are the kids who, you know, knew every detail for every exam and you just have to get comfortable with not you have to get comfortable with the unknown mm-hmm. coming into medical school cuz you're going to get into a test and there's going to be something that you're not sure of. And I I think the MCAT does like a really good <laughs> job. I think it really does a good job of that because you get in the MCAT and there's a question where you're like, I have no idea what they're talking about. Or you read one of the passages and it's like, what did I just read? So, <laughs> so <laughs> step one and step two are kind of similar, which are board exams when you get into medical school. I remember sitting there during my test and being like, I have marked 50% of these questions <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I just guessed on 50% of these questions. And I'm like, I can't sit here and dwell on it. The clock is running away or like ticking down and I just have to move on. Like, this is how it is. Okay. See, see, and see. <laughs> when in doubt, see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what do you do when you feel like quitting? Come to Dave's office. I reassess. <laughs> what do you? So what do you mean? So I I take a deep breath. I think about what's making me this feel this way and why. Mm-hmm. And then I remind myself to remember the big picture. Yeah. Why did I come here in the first place? And it's it's training your mind to remember. You know, I'm here because I want to help people. I want to do something for science or whatever it is that got you into medicine. I think it's important to kind of just keep remembering. Even though my bad days are bad, it's okay because there's a goal in sight. Mm-hmm. I think it's important, too, to just remember what you're passionate about, whether it's biochem or anatomy. Like, you're going to have your class that you get and understand, and then you're going to have the classes that... It you're took. like, why am I taking this? What am I getting out yeah. of this? Yeah, and those classes are harder to study for. If you don't enjoy what you're learning, you're going to push it off till you absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everybody so, has their strengths. Yeah, exactly. So. The... the, the Great thing about medicine is that at some point you will get to a place where you can start to determine your path, your own focus. Okay. So just because you're and for instance, just because you've matched in internal medicine doesn't mean that your the process of determining who, what you will do is over at that point, you know, you're going to, you're going to go through your internal medicine residency 
And then even after that, you can go, okay, now what kind of internal medicine doctor am I going to be? Mm -hmm. Or what kind of surgeon am I going to be? Or what kind of radiologist am I going to be? You have an, you, you start to, you know, possibilities begin to open up even more um, about what you can do with that um, yeah. thing, what kind of expertise you develop. Yeah. So that's kind of nice. I just want to add to that um, and say, you know, very few specialties have you using, you know, all of the knowledge that you gain in med school. Mm -hmm. I would say family medicine and emergency medicine, but everything Maybe else, internal medicine because they're like the... The broadest. Yeah. yeah that's they're pretty fair. broad, yeah. That's fair. Um, but like, even then, you know, you can always send someone to a specialist who is like really expert in this one area. And actually there was a really nice doctor who used to work at student health and Laros before she moved on. Um, I remember, you know, she was, I guess like, let me just backtrack. Like my answer to this question is that it's worth cultivating like a, like a council of superheroes that you can call on to remind you of all of these things when you are having a hard time reminding you reminding you of those things. Mm -hmm. um, and she was someone that I would talk to sometimes because she was, you know, my physician, but also kind of a mentor. And I remember once she told me, you know, like I never learned the spleen and I didn't need to use it. And, uh, you know, I never learned about, like I never retained the information about the foot and it's fine because I don't use it. But then I needed to learn about the ovary and that was important. So I really got good at the ovary and all, all that stuff. So it's okay you know, to prioritize the areas of knowledge that you know you're going to use in the future, which is hard to know early on in your career. But like, I feel like step one, the day you take step one, I think is the moment in your career where you know the most. Like, yeah. And then hopefully. you lose it exponentially. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. literally walked out of that test and went brain dump, brain dump. <laughs> yeah. And um, like a thing that I remind myself all the time is that if I don't remember every detail, I tell myself that when I am a clinician, you're not isolated. You're not the only one there. It's not like you can't, it's not like you have to remember every detail. You can always like go to the literature and like reevaluate, you know, what is important in this case. Or you can go to, you know, a colleague and say, I don't know what to do. What would you do? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you need to know things for tests, but just remember that you you don't have to be like this USB drive that has just all the information possible. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Brandy has a question about the role research might have or might not have played for you in med school. Let's hear from Brandy. I am interested in how much time, if any at all, you spend participating in research. If you do research in medical school, what is your focus? <laughs> yes. It turns out when you choose another language for an English, another language for an English, uh, it doesn't translate it for you. It just pronounces it as though they were from that country. <laughs> in like the most racist, stereotypical <laughs> right. accent possible. Right. It's very bad. Oh. Uh, so her question to translate uh, was, um, <laughs> if I can remember at this point. Um, how much, you know, what, how much did, does research play into doing research play into medical school? And if you did research, what was your focus? So you guys are probably a little early, but you did, did you say you did research before? Yeah. I mean, I, I did research in, um, undergrad. Uh, was that important to you when applying to school? Like to fi figure out like med school to figure out like how much research was going to be involved? Yeah. I, well, 
Um, I considered MSTP programs because, and that's sort of why I asked that question earlier. Um, but ultimately decided that I just kind of wanted to take, you know, med school by itself for right now. Um, and I did research in electrochemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, but please don't ask me anything about electrochemistry because that's, <laughs> that's fine. We have um, immediately put that out of our mind. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I had no plans to ask. Yeah, you. It, it, it would probably bore everyone. And Not even. Sure I don't even is. know if I know what was going on. Fair enough. Um, but uh, I'm interested in research primarily because, um, like, I want to be on sort of like that edge that you talked about earlier about the unknown and kind of like figuring things out. Um, but I wasn't, you know, too sure if that was something I wanted in med school. So mm-hmm. I'm very interested in teaching. So that's kind of my number one priority. Nice. I was kind of the opposite. I didn't have any research. Um, Orgo lab, chemistry lab, wasn't too impressed by it. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the worst version of yeah. lab work yeah. you so can like, imagine is like a gen chem. Yes. Yeah. The I bench research. No. <laughs> well, you should... Well, write you to are your the chemistry worst. professors and let them know that. <laughs> oh, they know. I've I've sent them one too many. I love you. Thank you for helping me. There you go. Oh, that's nice. That yeah. is nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they They'd love probably never to hear, hear that. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they probably just go on rate my professors and then feel horrible. <laughs> I forgot Sad that existed. For <laughs> it still exists. Yeah. yeah. I did research um, in undergrad and then I continued to do it through med school. Um, I transitioned from doing bench work in undergrad to clinical research in medical school because that was a little bit more sustainable. Um, and it's something that you can do while you're in classes and not have to dedicate, you know, specific times to be in the lab. I loved it. I still love it. Um, it's something I want to continue to do as a physician, um, even with an MD. I did consider doing an MD PhD and ultimately like the year after Aileen applied, I decided not to do it because I just didn't want to spend that many years in school. Um, but I would say if it's something that you're interested in, you should definitely do it. If it's something you're not interested in, then you don't need to do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. there are. You, you can pick the level of research that you do. I mean, I mean, like, my impression is uh, that the first time you make that choice is in deciding what school you want to go to. So some schools are very much, research is very important to them. Other schools, research is not as important to them and they focus more on clinical medicine. Um, I think we got a good mix here at Iowa. So you could choose that route. And then, you know, if you're not certain, you could be like, well, I'll go to Iowa for a place like Iowa and then I can make a decision about it later. Um, Things like that. I haven't picked your brain on it because I know, Aline, that research is your life. You like research? And I, what? <laughs> just a little, just a smidge. Yeah. There, I mean, there's basically an infinite vari- variation on how much importance research can have in your education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how much joy it can bring you. Some, I mean, as has been mentioned, you know, some people hate it and that's completely okay and a totally reasonable outcome of like doing a research program is to be like, whoa, this is not for me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's a broad spectrum for sure. Delaney wonders about the kinds of questions you learn to ask patients. I'm going to try to hit the right button this time. In the book we just started, In Shock, My Journey from Death to Recovery and the Redemptive Power of Hope by Rana Odish. The physicians were trained to ask data-based questions that made it easy to report back to their attending. Is that still how it is, 
or have physicians begun to realize that asking questions in a different way can be more beneficial to not only the patient, but also the physicians? I, uh, okay, so I don't have the background to recognize what this question refers exactly to. I'm assuming it's like the open-ended, closed-ended questions. But that was my first thought, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, we're taught to ask open-ended questions like, tell me, you know, like about your pain or tell me, you know, when this started like, w and guide me through it. And so they will tell you the story. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I think maybe they're talking about close-ended questions where you ask, scale of one to 10, how bad does it hurt? Where right. does it hurt? How long does it hurt? What's your experience with answering, with, with gathering data for say presenting to um, a resident or attending? So I tend to ask the same basic questions that you're taught within the first month of your medical school training. It's called old carts or onset location duration, um, characteristics, aggravating factors, relieving factors, um, temporal stuff, and then severity. That's like your basic template of what is actually going on. And then based off of the information you gather or even asking, you know, why are you here? Um, can kind of guide your conversation. And most of the time, you'll gather the right stuff. And sometimes you'll forget and your attending can go ask. It's really not that big of a deal. The biggest thing is, is making sure you're able to communicate with your patient, I think, mm -hmm. and less about specific questions until you understand what you're supposed to be asking. And that comes with just learning. Yeah, building that rapport is important when you're going to get the patient information the most out of it. Mm -hmm. And you... Uh, Jacob, you mentioned open-ended questions, which are different from what you were talking about. I mean, you're sort of trying to get at a certain thing when you're when you're going through your interview. It's sort of a little bit of both. So you could be like, tell me about when this started. That's an open question mm. instead of being like, did it start on this day? Um, so you can still ask open questions with a specific goal in mind. And that's kind of the key. So like the the most open of questions is that you ask is, well, what brings you here today? Yeah. And that's often the start of, you know, my impression is that's often the start of an interview with a patient. Yeah. Yeah. And like they emphasize to like, when you get into a closed ended question, like come back to an open ended question. It's not like you're stuck in one. Um, so you ask an open ended question, then if they don't give you, you know, the information you were looking for, you get more and more closed ended yeah. and then come back. And I, I think, one of the things that um, you want to be wary of is closing off avenues of investigation prematurely, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that's where the art of medicine comes into play, just mm -hmm. like trying to figure out how to navigate a conversation with a patient to get all of the information without getting sidetracked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And like trying not to put words in their mouth. Yeah. So like mm -hmm. when you, like, one common one is like, well, describe your pain and you're looking for things like dull or sharp or things like that. Sometimes a patient's like, well, it hurts. And so then you kind of have to guide them in the right direction, but you want to avoid that so that they give you, you know, in their own words, what's going on. Yeah. Sometimes it's not pain. Like we make the assumption there's pain, but maybe it's a discomfort or a numbness or a tightness. And like, if you pigeonhole them like that, I totally agree. It kind of enhances yeah, your ability to figure out what's really happening. Some patients I imagine will just answer the question and then stop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then some patients will tell you their life story after you've, <laughs> <laughs> after you've, uh, you know, asked them a very specific question. Um, so you probably have to then tailor your approach to that particular 
style of communication, we'll call it. Do you think? Yeah, it's called redirecting the patient. <laughs> yeah. Bringing them back to task. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I interpreted that question a little differently. Okay. Um, I took it to mean like the difference between the question you learn as a medical student versus the question that you pose to the patient. Um, and the example that I immediately thought of was um, in our CAPS class. At one point they brought in... Um, the uh, clinical and professional skills yep. course. So actually at multiple points, they'll bring in people who have the specific condition that you know you want to exemplify to new students. Um, and it was someone with uh, muscular dystrophy. And so what we learned in class is to ask, you know, do you have trouble raising your arm over your head? But the way that you ask the patient is like, do you have trouble combing your hair? You oh. Know? Like putting it in a context that makes sense in their everyday life so that they can, like, it just helps the patient think a little less deeply about the thing and kind of simplifies their, yeah, it simplifies. Um, <laughs> it, it's No, I, I, you're saying it exactly right, I think. I mean, mm -hmm. you're you're putting it in terms that the patient can sort of immediately understand what it is you're trying to get at rather than forcing them to process and thus perhaps make the wrong, you know, interpret your question incorrectly and then give you bad data. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Grace has a question about ethics. Are there ever things you've had to do in medical school that conflict with your own personal ethical or moral code? Luckily, not. I don't yeah. think I've been put in that position. I don't think I have either. Yeah. I think there are. So the classic one that I think of is um, if you are opposed to abortion um, on, a, on moral grounds, but you are practice or learning in a state where abortion is legal, um, you might be in, you might be, uh, sort of required, I guess, to be there when that is happening. At, I don't know that you would be forced. No, to be at there. Iowa. So we, when we're in a specific OB-GYN rotation, they give us the opportunity to go to Planned Parenthood, for example, and watch or at least participate in the care of patients considering getting abortions, um, which is a pretty eye-opening ex experience. But if you don't want to participate, if you feel uncomfortable or if it goes against your values, you are more than welcome to opt out of that part of the program. And I'm sure that's not the same everywhere, but yeah, that's how we do it. Um, but there are other more sort of... Um, uh, we can talk about other sort of more gray areas about, you know, it's not really whether it's ethics or just, you know, um, you believe something is being done incorrectly. Um, and the classic one for me there that I've heard about is, you know, sometimes you as the medical student have to advocate for your patient. Okay. So you may see something being done in a way that you don't think is the right way. Or you may see something that is being missed by other people. This is not really an ethical dilemma as much as it is um, pointing out, pointing people's attention towards something that might be happening wrong. Um, or in, you know, does that? Am I making? Has that come uh, come up for you? Yeah. So if there's something that I've seen happen, it's like 
a lab value that I thought was significant that nobody ever mentioned when we were talking about the patient. And what I'll do in that instance is be like, hey, so what are we going to do about this? Or did I miss something about this part of the conversation? So it's kind of just artfully, without being disrespectful, bringing the uh, concern up and asking for your own learning instead of being like, hey, I think you're doing this wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I mean, there's like, there's a power dynamic between, you know, you're a medical student learning. So if you, if you try to point something out that the physician isn't picking up on or doesn't think is important, you know, I think, like you said, it's important to phrase it like you're still learning, but you think it might be important. So sometimes physicians can get narrow-minded and a medical student doesn't have that sort of mindset. So mm-hmm. opinions are always important. I feel like this happens in the lab a lot too, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, where, um, you know, a lot of techniques um, in science are, you know, pretty pretty much the same and you know in every lab but you know some labs do things a little differently but where it becomes kind of an issue is how people interpret the results Um, and in immunology specifically the one area that's always really ambiguous and where you have to like take someone's word for it is flow cytometry right Um, so if um, for anyone who's not familiar basically your you know flow is a way to um, identify different cell types based on markers that are expressed on the outside of the cell and so you treat them with an antibody with, you know, something that shines bright um, as it's fed into this machine. And then as uh, it fluoresces, it creates a signal, but you're feeding like thousands of cells at a time. So, it, you know, it's creating all these little dots on a plot. Um, and so, you know, one of the first things you have to do is quote unquote gate um, the different signals to kind of separate out because it's not distinct. You know, some, sometimes it kind of blends together, but you're basically looking for a gradient but that can vary from person to person, you know, how, how they separate out different signals. Somewhat subjective yeah. in terms of what they're paying attention to. I mean, the data is there. The data is in some way objective, but then somebody has to, is in charge of, or somebody at some point looks at that data and figures out what it means. Mm-hmm. I mean, not everyone agrees. You know, we're looking at the same data. And I mean, it happens a lot where like we'll be reading a paper and I'll look at a figure and like the author's, are making a statement about that data that like I really don't see and I'm like I'll take your word for it because I don't see or that you can draw this conclusion or I don't believe you, you or I don't believe you yeah might happen. Um, I mean when you look at papers from like the 80s and the 90s like there are western blots and flow you know plots that are not even labeled like the axes are not labeled there's no percentages there's no um, oh, like, really? Yeah, yeah, it's super vague. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> like, oh, good science. Thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. I think in some cases now, some journals, because... It was only, a few people realized it was only in the 90s that people uh, discovered labels for data. <laughs> yeah. It was like they unearthed them in a mine somewhere. Yeah. PowerPoint <laughs> didn't come along until mm, far away. Yeah. Yes. I think a lot of journals now will require um, the authors to submit... Um, not just like the representative figure, but like three or four replicates so that they can make sure that they didn't just pick the best looking one, but it actually is a representative figure. And they don't publish all of the replicates, but they just want to be sure that like, okay, this is actually what you observed. Yeah. I think it's good for the community and it's good for patients for sure. You may also be exposed to unethical behavior, um, unfortunately. I mean, no institution is monolithic. And so, you know, 
while the institution may be firmly against things that violate codes of ethics, there could be a physician who, or a, or a, a preceptor, or um, a, a PI, or somebody like that who um, does violate that code or those codes. And, you know, that's a tough situation. Um, you know what that makes me think of? Mm. So I'm sure you all have heard of this story, but Larry Nasser and the oh, yeah. gymnastics yeah. Uh, team, I found that case so disturbing and listening to the testimonies of all of his victims. I mean, it's not like one is bad enough. One is horrific enough, but there were hundreds, hundreds of young women, children that were abused by this man. And it made me wonder how many people stood by and stayed silent because there were, he couldn't possibly have gotten away with it yeah. without people just turning a blind eye. You, there mean, were no like, doubt many, many people who were complicit yeah. in that situation. Absolutely. Isn't there a name for that? The bystander, like the bystander effect where you, maybe you think that somebody else is going to do something so that you, yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. So you just say, okay, the well, responsibility spreads in too many different directions. And so you feel like, no, well, does anything. Gonna, yeah. 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 Um, so that's the kind of ethical and moral dilemma you might be more likely to be exposed to rather than being forced to do something. You may be put in a position where you have to decide whether a particular behavior you are observing is something that you need to tell somebody else about that you need to report. Mm -hmm. Um, in general, I would say that if you see something that's unethical, you need to say something about it. And a lot of people will kind of, uh, how, do, how do I put this? They will take advantage of your trust and your uh, aversion to being impolite or rude to kind of persuade you to keep quiet. Yeah. But Or they may take advantage of the natural fear to avoid retribution. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah. Again, these are not, and that feeling, unfortunately, is not uncommon um, you, you know, my experience is that, you know, when the student experiences unethical behavior from say somebody who has more power over them, they're reluctant to talk about that with the people who, who can actually do something because they don't want it to adversely affect their grade. Um, so these are also things that you need to deal with. I would say, you know, and, and how you can screen for that, um, begins in, you know, when you're, you know, for a medical school, it begins when you're starting to consider a particular school, ask the question. Mm -hmm. You don't have to ask it. You can even ask it anonymously. You can call up and give a fake name <laughs> to your, you know, to the admissions um, office and say, look, I have a question about this. You know, how would your institution deal with this? What, you know, what are your policies? If they don't answer the question to your satisfaction or don't have an answer to this question, then something to think about. Yeah, I mean, I know they have like the student mistreatment um, reporting that you can report anonymously. Yes, we do have that. Assuming there's here, yeah. a mm -hmm. way to report, you know, unethical behavior in the hospital, I, but I don't. I'm not. It all sure. shows up. So for rotations, at least, we have to do a mandatory evaluation. Otherwise, you don't get your grade. Um, and at the end of each evaluation, it asks about mistreatment and any sort of ethical situation and those responses get sent to our dean's office yeah. and he reviews all of them yep so that's the system we have in place to deal with that sort of thing um yeah let's move on to kayla who has a question about breaking bad news 
Not everyone really knows how to break bad news. Are you ever taught how to tell a patient or family members that they or a loved one is dying? Aditi? Yeah. So during your second year of med school, when you are about ready to start rotations, they have you do a breaking bad news session where they basically coach you through talking through different scenarios like cancer or death or um, uh, any sort of situation that can potentially be bad. There's also like a general guideline. I can't remember what it's called, but it's like setting the stage, asking about what they know and assessing whether they want to know information. Um, what they've been told. Stars yeah. Yeah. The acronym, right? yeah. Yeah. And so they do a really good job of coaching you through that. Um, and then when you get into clinics, there's obviously a lot of opportunity, unfortunately, because we do work in a hospital setting to have that conversation with a patient. Some clinicians want to do it themselves just because as medical students, we don't often carry that knowledge base that's necessary to have that discussion. Others want you to go in and try for yourself. Um, I, for example, have had a difficult discussion with a patient about one of their diagnoses and um, it was in a hemonc clinic, so it wasn't the greatest prognosis or anything like that. Um, but what the clinician coached me to do before I went in there is he was like, you know, after you've kind of introduced yourself, started talking to them, you ask them why they're here and they tell you, you know, they're here for their results for a spe specific test. Um, if you ask them, okay, so are you ready to have this discussion? Um, tell them, just tell them. Because um, that's what they're there for. They're there for answers. And I found that to be kind of an eye-opening experience because, you know, I think it's easy to skirt around the issue and skirt around the discussion and avoid making someone cry or feel bad. But once you give them that information, it's what you do after that matters most. Yeah. Like clear bad answers are better than vague, um, not like vague answers. Yeah. You know, at least it gives the patient some sort of sense of direction as to where they are. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've heard, though, is you want to avoid walking into a room and saying, so, you got cancer. Um, <laughs> which would be... I, I mean, sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but like the, well, there's a, it's so cartoonishly a bad... But it, but but it happens. happens. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, I've heard of this happening, you know, like and I've, I've read of this happening. Happen. And it's That's like... so jarring. Kidding. Yeah, and it's, it's like, well, well, you know, and in some cases... They keep talking. The clinicians keep talking sometimes and they just don't pick up on like... The horror. Take a break. Yeah. The power of silence is like incredible in these difficult situations yeah just being present in the room letting them work through their emotions and setting up maybe another appointment for them to come back and you know that is critical um my and i think i've said this on the show before my wife uh, uh did audiology and sometimes you give bad news and it, you know it's not like deadly bad news it's like oh you've lost your hearing in that ear that can be terrible news um, especially if you don't have the perspective of ever having head cancer, you know, like that's the, probably the worst news you've ever gotten. Um, the point though, is that everything that you say after that for some people is gone. Yeah. yeah. They're not going to remember anything you said after that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at, there, there is a point at which you should say, okay, like, as you said, okay, I've just given you this bad news. I could keep talking or we could set up another time to get together and, and really discuss, you know, after you've had a minute to process yeah, um, what you've just heard. 
there's a scene in the first um, episode of Breaking Bad where like it has that exact situation where he's told he has cancer and all you hear is mumbling mm-hmm. and he's just staring off. And uh, I mean, if you're going to deliver bad news, you like, just imagine the shock. Gonna, yeah, the patients are just going to drift off and like yeah. start contemplating life and um, how things are changing. So yeah, like give them a minute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let them absorb what you just said. Oh, and I've also been told. This was really interesting and kind of a psychological thing, um, but I've also been told never to shove a Kleenex box in their face when they start crying, because oh. it means that you're trying to make them be quiet and make the crying stop. Oh, wow. so the physician and this physician is like well known in the community, like really works with patients with some very bad cancer diagnoses, and he told me, you know, give them a couple of minutes to cry before you offer that Kleenex. Because then you're giving them a chance to just mourn. Mm. Mario wants to know what it's like working with different kinds of patients. In the United States, one is faced with such a diverse community. What has been the most challenging aspect of dealing with patients who have different religious slash ethnic backgrounds? What are some ways to help future medical students handle working with such a diverse population? That's interesting. So recently, uh, I took someone to the ER um, for a problem they were having, and uh, I noticed at the at registration that they asked the person what their religion was, and I was like, "Are you sure you can? It sounds kind of illegal." To <laughs> yeah. You know? And so um, she, the the person registering, um, the person I was accompanying said, well, we ask because you know there is a community of people uh, whose faith here in Iowa City you know, precludes them from being touched by people of certain uh, genders or other faiths mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's really just informing their care, particularly when uh, if the patient dies, then there's are certain rights about how the body should be handled. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I understood. Um, and so and that's not a, but that's not a question I expected in, you know, in this location where it's like relatively homogenous. But yeah, it's complicated to kind of anticipate what people's obstacles or levels of comfort will be. So, yeah, I'm not sure that uh, to the to the question of how to prepare students for this. I think it's exposure. I think two things. You know, an open mind. Um, that your beliefs and your understanding of the world, um, is different from those of other people. That's how you need to go into this. And then number two is just get some, you know, your, hopefully your clinical experiences and then the rest of your life will enable you to, will allow you to pick up information about different cultures and different ways of understanding the world um, that these cultures have. There are ways to seek out that exposure in medical school. Um, any thoughts about that? Um, I... I would like to say that, you know, you need to go into all these situations with respect for another human being because that's the most vital thing. Um, It may not always be reciprocated because you are a medical student and not the provider. Um, Gender can play a huge role. Religion can play a huge role. And you'll not only encounter that in your patients, you'll encounter that on a day-to-day basis. And so there's nothing that's going to prepare you going into those situations other than just hang on to your respect and hang on to, um, you know, not be resorting to rude comments. And like, I've been asked to stay out of rooms because I'm a female. Um, 
there have been guys that have been asked to stay out of rooms because they're male. Mm -hmm. I've been, you know, laughed at for my religion and asked to like stay out of people's care because I obviously don't belong here. Like just random things that'll happen. And instead of being super upset about it, I, you know, leave the room because that's what the patient wants. And ultimately you have to remember that you're here to provide the best care to your patient. And sometimes that means not being in the position to do what you are trained to do. Mm -hmm. Respect is a two way street, but sometimes you know, it's it. the most important thing is a one-way street from you to the patient. Yeah. So. Yeah. And just going back to like the preclinical training, like we have medicine and society here and they can teach us. They, I think they do a really good job at throwing everything out there and making us aware of our implicit biases and kind of putting it all out on the line. But it's really up to us and those patient encounters and really like the experience that everybody's talked about, but just remembering all of that. They, yeah. they have a really good tool called um, culture vision. Um, it like if you don't know something about like a certain culture, you know, they have these like synopses and the argument against it is that cultural competence can lead to individual incompetence. And so you just always have to remember that everyone's different. Um, but I think that like asking somebody's religion is like something you should be able to ask and they can have the right to refuse that question, but it also allows you to, you know, treat them. Um, in a way that they want to be treated and to make sure that you don't disrespect them in any way. So, yeah, I have heard uh, people accuse culture vision of being a little bit stereotypical. Right. Um, but as long as people treat it as like a guideline or like a starting point, I totally agree, Jacob. It's not. Yeah, I think there's only so far you can go in describing all the aspects of, say, you know, being a Muslim or mm -hmm. being a, I don't know, a Asian or something like that, you know, like. Yeah. You're not going to be able to fit all of that into any resource. So the idea right. is, you know, keep, you know, look at that resource, then keep an open mind. Um, you know, I think the other thing you can do during med school is involve yourself in activities that put you into contact with people who don't, who aren't like you. Absolutely. Um, totally. For instance, mobile clinic um, is one of the things that we have here um, that involves basically going out into the community and working with, um, I guess, primarily migrant healthcare or migrant workers, um, that's uh, that's one way to get a uh, uh, view that might be different from yours. Um, you can train, do some of your third year training in in um, Des Moines, which has different kinds of hospitals than we have here in Iowa City, which enables you to get a view of patients who whose um, socioeconomic circumstances are different, maybe from the ones that you. Um, experienced growing up and that you have internalized. Um, so take advantage of those opportunities if that's, um, I mean, you should take advantage of those opportunities if you can. Um, during residency, I mean, the, you know, when we talk about med school and what you learn in med school, I think one of the more important things to think about is the majority of the learning that's going to take place in your career comes after med school. Okay. So keep that in mind. You may decide that you want to work in rural medicine after, you know, to, so you take a clerkship, Aditi's shaking your head. That's fine. You're, it's not You're for shaking Aditi. yes or no. Aditi, I didn't know. Aditi, Aditi wants to work somewhere where there's, uh, you know. City. A city. But, okay. And that's fine. But, um, you know, you could go in rural medicine. There's a completely different mindset. There's a completely different way of practicing medicine in those settings. There's a completely different population of people that you'll work with. Um, 
So, yeah. It seems like like the consensus I'm hearing is that being kind and respectful is never the wrong way to go. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know? All human beings deserve respect. Yeah. And even when they're pissing you off. Yeah. <laughs> it's true though. Those situations can be very irritating. You can feel very um I don't know, disrespected, like invalidated. Yeah, invalidated and it's hard cuz you pay money to be here. You're trying to learn and you're not able to do that, but ultimately you have to keep in mind, you know, what's best for the patient and don't forget to lose sight of who you are despite the disrespect you're getting. Don't yeah. forget to not lose yeah. sight of who you are. Yeah. If you act according yeah. to your values. <laughs> don't forget to lose. Yeah. Whatever. English. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Wait, before we move on, I yeah. just wanted to um, mention an episode of Scrubs that I thought was really very relevant to this discussion. Um, I don't know if you all are familiar with the characters, but there's a female doctor, um, Dr. Elliot something, I can't remember. But anyway, she goes in to see a patient and he was clearly expecting a male doctor. And, um, you know, she tries to convince him or like persuade him that she is the doctor. And he's like, no, 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 that's not possible. Women are only nurses in a hospital. And so, you know, she's kind of going through this dilemma and she finally decides to like go ahead and pretend like she's the nurse, but like, by doing that is treating the patient. And so she ends up going on this long tangent about how she had this like torrid love affair with Dr. Elliot. And <laughs> he had to leave the hospital and whatever, whatever. But it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting the things people have to do to deliver the care, you know, to do their jobs, but in a way that's palatable to the people they're trying to serve. Yep. It's not easy. Last question. We're going to circle back to Teodrana. Teodrana. I uh, had another question about working in the clinics. In your third year, you are paired with different attendings. How do you work with different attendings? And how do you work with an attending that is challenging? <laughs> I love these questions. They're, are they great? They're, they're great. so good. And they're so um, relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, so like in life, you'll discover that different attendings have different personalities and some are fun and some are not very fun. Um, and you'll learn to get over it because that's the best thing you can do for your education. That doesn't mean like obviously taking mistreatment and stuff, but they will be difficult. It's not going to be fun sometimes, but they ultimately are hoping or trying to teach you something, and that's what you should keep in mind. I always like to say that some people teach you how not to be. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's That's their job when they enter your life. Yeah. I think do not do. Yeah. Don't do. I'm not going to do that. I think a lot of people do the best that they can, but have never gotten the feedback that it's not working. So it doesn't, it really comes from a bad place. They're just bad at that thing. But because of the power dynamic that Jake talked about, like no one has ever told them or like tried to correct the behavior, you know, in a way that makes them more effective at what they do. But not everyone is ready to hear that feedback sometimes. And mm-hmm. so you're kind of stuck in this position, like Aditi said, where you, you just have to get over it and manage as best as you can. But Or they've like had the feedback. So I've encountered an attending in particular um, on surgery because that's notoriously where you find the more difficult personalities. They had trained. Are you in... OK with this, what you're about to say? Yeah, 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 okay. yeah, because um, I really enjoyed my experience because I, you know, wanted to be a surgeon and Mm -hmm. so I was like if I can't have the ability to deal with difficult personalities then maybe this isn't the right field for me Mm -hmm. 
Um, and he was particularly difficult. He had trained in um, a different country where they were taught, you know, if you're getting yelled at, it's only making you better. Mm. And so he gave me this full disclosure at the beginning of the rotation where he was like, I'm going to be hard on you and it's not going to be fun. And I'm going to say things and I want you to know it's not anything personal. It's just how I've trained and it's how I want to train you. And it's important to keep that in mind that like not every attending you're going to encounter comes from a really nurturing and um, environment where they think, you know, singing your praises or giving you constructive criticism is a good way to teach you to learn. Some might just yell at you because they think that's what you need. Um, and so I think it's important to keep in mind that even though they're difficult, it comes from a good place sometimes, not always, but. It reminds me of um, one of the difficulties that I think, circling back to another question we had earlier, the difficulties in preparing for med school. Um, to date, you have been treated in a certain way by those people around you. Um, one of the f features of medical school um, that may catch you by surprise if you haven't really thought about it is how often you're going to be pushed outside of your comfort zone, how often you're going to be um, asked to do things that you're not, that you don't enjoy. For instance, um, I know this, it's famously in uh, ethics lectures here, you know, there's a, there's a thing where the the ethics lecturer will call on people, cold call people. It's terrifying. And um, <laughs> yeah. this, uh, you know, this is very uncomfortable for a certain kind of student. Um, but it's the way that he thinks you're going to learn best. And, you know, who, who are we to question that? Who are you guys to question that at this point? You know, like he knows what he's doing, hopefully. Um, but it's going to feel like you're picking on me. You're making my life hard. And I've already got a hard enough life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's like the whole argument with pimping, right? Is people look at pimping as a bad thing. And it can be done in a bad way. Yeah, but it's all about like how it's done and what the intention is. Pimping, like if you're not clear, like that's the practice in um, in clinical uh, in your clinical years, especially when people will ask you questions to sort of the Socratic method of learning, I guess, mm -hmm. in a way. Um, but sometimes it's done um, to put you in your place. That's why it's called pimping. Yeah. Put in my place. Put yeah. in my place. Oh. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the light bulb yeah, just right. clicked. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it's like all about the intention. Like some attendings will ask you questions or some people will ask you questions in a way that's to make you better mm -hmm. and push you outside of your comfort zone, kind of like what we were talking about. And others are there to really just knock home that you are the student and I'm the attending and that's how it's going to be. Um, but sometimes those experiences help us become better clinicians mm -hmm. uh, because they may ask you a question that you had never thought of. Like, what do you do when this situation arises? Well, I don't know. I wouldn't have thought of that. And since you're asking me and not the residents, I clearly have to answer this now. Right. <laughs> or, um, yeah, it's just all a part of the learning process, I think. And there are situations where you go, you know what? I don't know the answer to that. I will go and look that up since you brought it up. I'm yeah. going to assume that's important. I'm going to go home and read about it and I'll tell you about it later. Yeah. And that's um, okay. There are other ways yeah. that you need to get used to different attendings too, though. Like different 
different practices or different uh, uh, services have different ways they want to do things. And so you have to adjust very rapidly, comparatively rapidly from one service to the next as you move through your clerkships. And then there are even different attendings within uh, those clerkships that you have to um, do things differently for. And so there, there's a component of rapid adjustment of expectations that you need to, that you need to do. So that's another, right? Yep. Yeah. And your like responsibilities change with time, mm-hmm. right? When you're a second year, they're not going to expect like you to go and splint people in the ER. But when you're a fourth year, you might show up on a rotation and they might be like, okay, go see these four consults and call me when you're done. And you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, we have these early clinical experiences where you go to, um, it, during your first year and a half of didactics, you go to see like physicians and other healthcare professionals in um, doing their job. And one of the ones that I shadowed uh, had a uh, third year medical student with him. And the third year medical student said that he has a lot of expectations from you, but he writes them out on paper. So you can take them home, you can look at them and then he has a discussion with you, you know, if you have clarification. So it's very clear um, what he expects of you. And then when he pimps, it's not like ever, like I'm trying to put you in your place. This is, he treats it as a learning opportunity. So that's my experience with it. There are some really great people in in residency and as attendings who, you know, re- it's so important to them to teach well and for you to get at what they're what they're trying to teach you um and those will perhaps boo you on the days when you're exposed to people who are like you're just being a pain in the ass <laughs> and you learn from bra- being wrong yeah, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. it'll exactly. stick yeah. so well when you're wrong and you can recite you know every branch of some vessel yeah. in your sleep now <laughs> yeah. that is among the hardest things i think for students to get used to is being wrong yeah and yeah. being comfortable with being wrong i i would imagine that it's probably the most difficult thing to to get yeah passed. um like when you finish an exam you don't remember the certain number that you got right but you will never forget the one you got wrong <laughs> and that's the learning yeah. opportunity yeah that's all the questions that i picked out from that list i want to thank um the students of jennifer anderson's university of nebraska lincoln's sociology of health and Healthcare class for the lovely uh questions thank you also aditi you're welcome aline Absolutely. Kelsey. Anytime. And Jacob. Yep. No problem. I hope you guys especially will be back on the show. It's, I know these guys will be back, but I hope you will be back on the show <laughs> yeah. at some point. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you listeners for making us part of your week. If you like what you heard today, we hope we've earned your subscription. Not only do we answer questions, we might even answer them well. So send your questions or whatever you like to the shortcodes at gmail.com. Or you can leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. Don't forget to contribute your recipes for med school success by visiting theshortcoat.com and clicking the orange send in a recipe button, just like Jasmine C. did with her spicy, smoky lasagna. And why not, right now, while your podcast app is open, give us some stars and a review because validation is important to us. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine student government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox and our closing music is by Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week.